Today we have a friend and a, a very esteemed uh, wildlife ecologist in the community that we've we've dealt with for television and the magazine. We have Dr. Will Gulsby from the University of Auburn. Will, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Dan. Glad to be here. Appreciate you having me on again. You know, we got to meet you. We came down there to Auburn here a couple of years ago uh, with Dr. Ditchkoff. One thing that I found was fascinating, and, and I'm going to just fast pace this because there's so much we want to talk to you about today, was your expertise. Well, before we get into that, I want to tell everybody, because you might not know Dr. Galsby, he started off at uh, North uh, Georgia University, uh, got his master's from Georgia, and his doctorate um, in wildlife ecology and management. He's worked in that area basically his whole career. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Will. That's right. And I know some of the things that you've been... Um, I guess near and dear to your heart and your research um, kind of go this coincidentally I just dropped a blog this morning on the Dan Schmidt deer blog at deer and deer hunting I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a quiz to start oh boy so basically this was my take on it and I'm asking an expert and I should have consulted you before I done did this but the headline to my blog was seven things you seven things you do not want in your deer hunting property as far as invasive plant species so i'm going to okay. let you guess which seven i picked and see if i was anywhere close man i'm sure you yours is colored with the upper midwest perspective yep. i would guess yep. so it's so you, you got to think wisconsin minnesota indiana instead of Georgia. so so i'm not as familiar with plant communities in those areas um bush honeysuckle yep number one did that make the list yep um let's see do y'all have do y'all have problems with any invasive Lespedeza species? Don't have that. Okay. Not on my list, anyways. Um, Not on my list. All right. Uh, fescue grass. Don't have that on my list. I would think think <laughs> more like woody browse or wood. I should not browse. Woody species. Trees and uh, trees and shrubs. Privet. <laughs> I'm I'm I wrote a bad blog. Keep going. <laughs> I'll give you two more. See if you see if I got two more. Uh, buckthorn. Yep. All right. We got two. You got two out of seven. Try try for one more. Let's see. Uh, multi-flora rose. There we go. Yep. You're you're on a roll. Should I give you another try? Give one more. I think I'm. I think I'm good, Dan. Okay. I'm gonna tell you. I don't want to. I don't want to discredit myself in front of your listeners any more than I probably already no, have. No, this is my. This is my take, and my take's a layman's take. The other ones I had were black locust. Japanese barberry kudzu. I was gonna say barberry. It came to mind. Yep, kudzu. Is that how you say it? Kudzu. Kudzu. Uh, yep. Glossy buckthorn. We talked about that. And uh, autumn autumn olive, which I think. Oh, is that's also... a good. Yeah, those are all good ones. So let's talk about that now. This is the time of the year, spring and summer. Uh, a lot of guys get all amped up and say, "I'm going to go manage my property." Is there a right and wrong way of doing that? Or um, if you're just a guy and you're trying to do this, are you wasting your time? No, I mean, absolutely. You know, I think I think there are things that you can do that are maybe a misallocation of time, you know, focusing on the wrong thing. Um, but, you know, I think anytime a landowner or a hunter gets more involved in, in trying to provide what deer need year round, um, the better off the resource is going to fare in general. So, I mean, invasive control is obviously a big issue. It varies in, in terms of its relative level of importance from one area to another. 
you know, if you've got an understory that's completely dominated by one of those species that we just talked about, and it's excluding, you know, much more valuable food and cover resources for deer, obviously that's going to be high priority on your list. But if you have just a spotty distribution of those, maybe not as much of a concern, especially let's say on a property where it may be, you know, almost a hundred percent closed canopy forest and you've got very little deer forage on the ground, you know, I'm going to address that sunlight limitation before I'm going to start necessarily controlling a spotty invasion. Okay. That makes, that makes total sense too. The other question I wanted to ask you about that is, cause I've seen it a lot over the years is guys, they, they, their hearts are in the right place and they do want to do these things. Um, but then they do, let's say, uh, one that really comes to mind was a guy had about a, I'm going to say about an 80 acre woodlot and it was mostly hardwoods. They went in and cut it and then they did not do any type of, um, uh, invasive work after that. Mm-hmm. And when yeah. that forest came back, it came back mostly in softwoods and it was just completely overrun with barberry. Yeah, sure. Um, is there something like in a case like that, if somebody has something like that, and I think it could be, and I'm sure you could add to my list, but no matter where you live, if you live in the South or the North and you have a situation like that, um, is there a, I guess, what is the right way of going about it if you're logging first? Yeah. And then you want to try to control those invasives after that. Yeah. Big picture. This, this is a great question. I love that you asked this. Um, big picture, you know, and I, and I think a, a illustration here that might help some of your listeners understand the importance of this approach with silviculture is that, you know, we know that anytime, you know, most, most hunters, I think have at this point in time, uh, played a role in establishing a food plot or planted a food plot themselves. Right. And we know that when we, you know, regardless of what steps we take, if we kill the existing vegetation first, or we just go straight to the the soil disturbance, the, the plowing, we know that we've set the stage for plants to take over that site. And so if we're going to plant something, we want to be ready to plant that as soon as possible, because otherwise something else that maybe we don't want is going to take over instead. So just a general, you know, principle in land management for wildlife is anytime that you create a condition to allow other, you know, to, to make conditions conducive to germination of, of plants, right? You want to make sure that you're giving, doing everything you can to give a competitive advantage to the plants that you desire that are most beneficial to deer. And the same thing is true with forestry. When we get that sunlight back down to ground level, everything is going to grow And, you know, whatever your seed bank is comprised of or whatever, you know, seeds are being dispersed around the landscape by birds and various other species, those are the ones that are going to get the competitive advantage. And so from a silvicultural perspective, a lot of times, and specifically in situations where we're trying to manage for deer, um, a lot of times we're trying to favor oaks, right? Because of their, the value of the acorns that they produce. And generally speaking, if you're going to harvest a stand of oaks and you're hoping that oaks regenerate in their place, then you want to make sure that that seed is set or that that stage is set by having advanced regeneration in place. And so oftentimes what that entails is it's actually a two stage clear cut process that we refer to as a shelter wood harvest, where we identify some of our best producing oak trees in advance of the, of the harvest. And then we remove the poor producing trees, allow those, good producers to continue to generate acorns, which in this case turn into seeds. We're not as concerned about their forage value. And then we wait to do that final cut to remove those remaining seed trees until 
that oak regeneration is already in place. That's pretty fascinating. I've ne- actually never seen that in play. So that is talking about a, a real dedicated plan because that's mm-hmm. you've got to come in there at least a year in advance, right? Oh, yeah. Sometimes several years because, you know, mass crops are cyclical. And so we want to make sure that when we perform that initial cut, that it's on the heels of a good seed production year. So are you actually going out there and just looking which trees are basically producing the most acorns? Yeah, exactly. And and there's a pretty simple way to do it. Um, You know, you can get really technical and down in the weeds as we do sometimes for, you know, research and, um, and foresters will do, you know, from a silvicultural perspective, but you know, the, a landowner's, you know, if they were managing a small woodlot and maybe it's not a large scale commercial timber harvest, they're just going to go in and remove some of those undesirable species or the oaks that aren't producing as much. Just go in there in the fall with a pair of binoculars and just set a timer on your watch at each tree that you go to and spend, you know, 30 seconds up to a couple of minutes just looking at the branches of that tree and counting the total number of acorns that you're able to spot. And then, you know, once you do that enough, you'll start to see some trends emerge with certain trees having a greater number versus others. That's fascinating stuff. I never thought about that. And another good point that you make is like red oaks, that's every other year normally for a, a good harvest. White oaks can produce every year depending on the species. I yep. Guess. Yep. It, it just depends on a lot of factors. And uh, the other question I, I, man, I could talk to you all day about this topic, but um, <laughs> when we're talking about a forest, a forestry friend of mine, this is many, many, actually decades ago, he told me that in areas with super high deer densities like we have, and I'm sure like you mm-hmm. have in some of your areas, mm-hmm. when you cut a forest down, he said, you're, he said most, he said invariably you're going to get a brand new forest because yeah. it's not going to be those 80 year old oak trees that you had because the deer kept browsing, 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 and there's nothing coming back. Yeah, absolutely. Is that true? Oh yeah. Deer over browsing can absolutely limit oak regeneration. We see this as a perennial problem in a lot of areas of the country. The Northeast is probably the, the kind of case in point. Like there's been a lot of that work done in Pennsylvania and New York. Um, and so, you know, there's a couple remedies to that. You know, one would be obviously reducing deer density if you're preparing to implement some kind of strategy along those lines so that it's at a point where you don't have that browsing and you can start to actually regenerate some of those oaks in the understory prior to that cut. Um, another way that you can do it is by shifting your focus. If you have the ability and the resources to do it from trying to regenerate oaks at a small scale to a much larger one, because we do see in a lot of cases where we try to do just like these, these it's called group selection cuts where we put in small patch clear cuts across the landscape to regenerate oaks that deer just end up focusing on those areas and young oak trees are a preferred browse species, especially during the winter time. So they just get snapped up really quickly. So if we expand that out across larger acreages, you've essentially swamped or overwhelmed the deer and prevented them from being able to consume a hundred percent of that regeneration. How, how, how do you see things down in Georgia, for example, or, or even Alabama, are the deer mm-hmm. herd, are the densities to the, are they still at that point? Are they still high where you're dealing with those problems? They're still pretty high in most places. Um, you know, the only places that I frequent where I would say that they're, they're moderate to even being relatively low are, you know, if you go up in some, some of the Southern Appalachians, you know, where it's almost hundred percent closed canopy forest, you'll see, you know, lower deer abundance there. Um, and then, you know, some of the more intensively hunted, public lands 
and even you know people generally think of deer densities as being on higher on private lands but some of these you know leases that carry high densities of hunters and you know each of those hunters may only be taking one to two does a year but with a high density of hunters you can you can quickly drive that population down pretty low um but those are kind of the exception to the rule in most places i still see you know, moderately high to relatively high deer densities. So it is a problem, and it's something that you have to deal with if you're if you're trying to deal with regenerating a forest or, or absolutely. Like that. Um, I'm kind of jumping around. I want to uh, follow up. I know one of the things that you this is not the same topic, but it is habitat. When we were down and we visited you, I think it was two years ago. You had showed us um, areas that you had worked with prescribed fire, and I know that's one of the things you've done a lot of your studies on. How how does fire help a landowner, and what are just some of the things that somebody who's thinking about, hey, I've heard that this can regenerate you know, native grasses or this can regenerate mm-hmm. areas where I want to plant a food plot. What are some of the things, the first questions that somebody has to ask about that? Yeah, Should. so... Starting out, um, one thing that that those that are interested in using prescribed fire should be aware of is that it's not a it's not a silver bullet. You know, it's it's not magic. Um, really, it's just a it's just a relatively cheap, um, ecologically correct in some senses, I guess you could say, because it's a natural process. You know, it's a natural ecological process way to maintain a certain successional state within an area. And when it comes to deer management, we want to maintain the vegetation community in a successional state that provides the greatest amount of forage, cover, or somewhere in the middle for deer, depending on what our objective for that specific area is. And so all succession is, is the process of the sequential plant communities that will occupy a given site over time. So if you go out and you bulldoze a forest tomorrow, what are the first plant, you know, the first, what's the first community of plants that arises over those first one to two years and that'll change, you know, during years three, four, five, and so on, eventually to where you get a young forest, right? And then we'll start out with a, a young forest comprised of primarily pioneer species like pines and some of our, you know, maples and sweet gums and species like that. And then it eventually it'll transition to oaks and hickories. And then in certain places, you know, we'll, we'll proceed on to beech and hemlock and, you know, even longer lived species than that. And so, when, when it comes to managing for deer, oftentimes, if we're trying to maximize forage availability in the understory, we're thinking about trying to increase coverage of native forbs. And all a forb is, 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 is actually better defined by what it is not than what it is. It's not a woody plant. It's not a grass. It's just a flowering broadleaf plant. And the reason we want to manage for forbs specifically when it comes to deer habitat is these are some of the most nutrient rich plants that there are out there specifically in regards to their crude protein content. And some, many of our native forbs have crude protein content that is on par with that of a lot of the clovers that we plant in food plots. You know, they can have 25, 30% crude protein content. So that's why we want to manage for those. And they're oftentimes, and it depends a little bit on where you are in the country the climate there, the soils there, but those typically respond within, you know, two to three or maybe four years after a disturbance like fire. And they're re- relatively short lived. And as, as the plant community progresses, it'll shift more to a woody species composition. So when that happens, unless we're trying to manage for 
brows for winter brows. We want a lot of woody cover or if we're trying to manage it as a bedding area. Um, if that's not the case, we'll want to set it back again so that we've got higher forb cover. Now, if we do want more woody brows for winter time, or we do want more horizontal screening cover to manage that area for bedding, then we may let it proceed a little bit longer. Maybe we disturb it every four to five years with fire, but that's all fire is. It's a process to try to use to target a desired plant community to meet some objective that we have. In this case, it would likely be deer, you know, deer management related. But another point that I want to make this important for anyone to keep in mind that's interested in pursuing the use of prescribed fire for that purpose is that the vegetation response that you get following fire is going to be proportional to the canopy cover that you have in that area. If sunlight's not hitting the ground, essentially all you're going to do is you're going to consume some leaf litter um, and, you know, some sticks that are, you know, <laughs> that have fallen off the trees that are hanging out there in the understory. You're going to get very little vegetation response. You're going to have a lot of fuel that you're burning up and probably not a lot of benefit. That's right. But as far as, you know, I think you also ask about resources. Yes. For individuals interested in pursuing prescribed fire. The first thing that I would look at is see if your state has a prescribed fire council. Most states do have that. Um, and then some states are even starting to form prescribed burners associations, which are collectives or groups of individuals that are like-minded, that are interested in using prescribed fire for various objectives on their property. And um, those groups can link you to training resources. So a lot of states have certification classes that you have to go to to become a prescribed burn manager. Um, for instance, ours here in Alabama is a 32-hour uh, course. It's four eight-hour days. It's one of the most intensive ones in the country. But that's probably also because we burn a lot more mm -hmm. than a lot of other states in the country. We've got a long history with this practice. Um, but some of those associations will also potentially even host learn and burn events. That's what we call them here, where you can go out with experienced practitioners and learn from them. Um, and there, I'm even starting to see some pop up that have uh, like cargo trailers available that you can you know, use for a weekend if you're trying to implement a prescribed fire on your property that has a lot of the essential equipment that'll help you get that burn completed safely and effectively. Does this normally come at a cost or do states offer that as a service? As uh, the prescribed burn associations or the, mm -hmm. well, the fire like, councils? Like I'm a landowner. I've never done it. And I, yeah. have, I, I have like a meadow that I want to burn. Um, and I, I certainly don't want to do it myself. I, I'm not going to sit there and watch YouTube right. videos and try to do it, yeah, <laughs> which sure. I know a lot of people would try to do and then yeah. end up with a nice bill from the DNR when you burn down the neighbor's house. But, um, <laughs> um, like, no, let's just like example in your state, um, they have these resources. Does landowner have to pay for that? Um, to have somebody come out and help them do that or. Yeah. If you had somebody come out and help you, typically you're going to have to pay for that. Yeah. Um, but, but then some of those other resources, like if you just need the equipment, maybe you don't have drip torches and the backpack sprayers and, you know, the flappers and all that kind of stuff, you know, you can, a lot of times they'll loan that out for, for free, as long as you're a member of the association. That's cool. Now, um, you were talking, this is interesting because we've, we've actually run, I don't know how many articles on prescribed burning and deer and deer hunting over the years. And we actually yeah. did a TV show on it. One thing that, that you mentioned that I find fascinating, because I am fascinating in the whole, not just management, but how, like you said, forest succession, um, having, it's not a one and done such deal. It's not like, right. oh, I'm going to burn my meadow and now it's going to be awesome deer hunting for the next 20 right. years. No. Yeah. Like you said, you really should have a plan in there. And I didn't even think about that because 
I do know, like you said, when you burn, we saw it down at your uh, facilities. You guys burn that area, and within days, that's starting to sprout up in mm-hmm. something. You call them forbs. Yeah. I call them weeds, whatever they are. Yeah, they are. Um, that's what they are. And uh, I'm like, that's cool. That's giving me some great deer food. But then I know within three or four years, you're going to have a lot of woody stems in there. That's right. Um, okay, so you have some good cover, but maybe you have some good cover. For, oh, so you got some good food for a while you got some good cover yeah. for a while and then you burn it again or you you figure yeah. out what you want to do with it i never thought of it in those terms that it's almost like having a some kind of syllabus or itinerary for your land for a mm-hmm. period of 10 or 20 years yeah and so what we what, how we start kind of linking this together and this is kind of where the mm-hmm. the art of a management plan or you know thinking about the ecology the broader you know questions of the interspersion what we, it's, it's fancy scientific terms that we use is interspersion and juxtaposition of these different cover types. It essentially just means how they're arranged on the landscape comes into play. And, you know, when I think about it, when I'm working with landowners, you know, in the South, most, most of us burn on about a three-year rotation for when we're burning for deer. And the first year after that burn, you're going to get a lot of the annual species. It's going to be a pretty decent mix of grasses and forbs. In year two, a lot of your perennials and your legumes, your native peas, your native beans that are high in crude protein content will start coming on board. And then once you start to get about three years out from fire, that's where you get a lot more woody coverage of woody plants. And so that turns into a better browse producing area and a better screening cover or, you know, an area that provides a lot more visual obstruction. So what we try to do is we create these blocks adjacent to one another where you know one has burnt been burned in the current year one was burned last year one was burned in the previous year and so that allows us to start piecing those puzzle pieces together so that we have this community of plants adjacent to this next community and this next one and so that you're you're providing for all of those year-round needs and resources in one relatively small area and if the property is large enough you actually start replicating that across the landscape and so I've got my high forage value area directly adjacent to my area that also is providing um, high winter forage value and high escape cover bedding cover value. Now, when I'm looking at this and I'm, I'm listening to it, if I'm the average guy, which I am, um, you're like, yeah, that's great, but I don't have that kind of land. Can you do this on smaller property, 10 acres, 15 acres, 20 acres? Yeah, you can. Um, there's, there was actually some research done a couple of years ago by a colleague of mine that I work quite a bit with. Um, his name is Dr. Marcus Lashley. He's at the university of Florida now. And, um, he did this work in a pre in a previous position he held at Mississippi state, but, um, you've probably seen it. He had this, he, he brought up this concept called bow range burning and they were essentially going out to these areas where they had tree stands and using a, a backpack leaf blower to put in a little fire break that had like a 30 yard radius around the tree stand. And they were just burning that, you know, uh, that 30 yard radius directly adjacent to the tree stand. And they were, they were able to put out cameras on those sites and prove that intensity of deer use directly around that tree stand increased in response that's to the pretty, plants that, that's pretty that awesome. came back following fire. I, I'm gonna I thought it was you, a good idea too. I'm going to ask you to write an article about that now because that is, I'm making a note. That is, okay. That's an awesome idea. Yeah. Um, and the reason I ask is because that's what I have. I have 10 acres. And yeah. um, the reason I got some of these ideas for these questions today was I'm all about history of land. Like, mm-hmm. I've always been fascinated, no, no matter where I lived, 
I've wanted to know, okay, who lived on this land a hundred years ago? What did they do? Yeah. And for me, my epiphany on this one was just recently, I have a, a back field where we planted, we actually showed it on a TV show. I planted a food plot last year, about an acre. And surrounding that acre is about four other acres of little red pines. Mm-hmm. And they weren't planted. And because um, it, it's just extremely rugged back there. It's just up mm-hmm. and down. And I, I just said, it's almost like somebody came in here with a bulldozer. And I actually made that comment to my neighbor. And he goes, well, actually they did. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, it was about... He goes, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, the uh, farmers that were living in my f- farmhouse that I have now, they used to burn their trash in a barrel, and uh-uh. it set the whole field on fire, and it burned like 20 acres. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. well, that makes sense because those pines needed fire to regenerate. Yeah. Because I yeah. said I knew they weren't planted, um, and I'm like, well, it's actually kind of cool now because it's coming up into some, some nice cover. I mean, pine trees don't yeah. offer any food, but- but that's great winter thermal cover. Yeah. And I'm like thinking like, so when you think in those terms, no, I'm not going to burn it, but I'm th- if you think in those terms, there are certain things that you can do um, yeah. from a smaller perspective. Absolutely. And on, you know, a similar size property too, I think a, a really beneficial practice that you can use to increase deer habitat quality is just selective removal of trees, you know? Um, and so, you know, you go into a woodlot and maybe you've got, a mixture of some oaks and some ash or something like that. And so you take out the ash, leave the oaks and you've, you've potentially benefited your deer in two ways. One is you've got that increased sunlight to the ground. So you're giving the plants within a deer's reach that a deer can consume and hide in the opportunity to grow because that sunlight's no longer intercepted in the canopy. And number two, if that ash that you take out is directly adjacent to an oak, you thereby allow the oak to expand its crown out and we know that acorn production is correlated with crown size. I'll be darned. So you've potentially increased the acorn production of that tree as well. And we found, I had a graduate student working on this a couple of years ago, um, but about two people can go in and what they were actually doing was using herbicide to kill trees so they didn't have to fell them all, especially some of the you know larger trees once you start getting up over you know, eight, 10 inches DBH, it can be pretty hazardous, or, you know, maybe you're an older individual that doesn't, you know, want to deal with that or something along those lines. <laughs> you can, you can inject those trees with herbicide, leave them standing dead. And you've still just as effectively removed that, that sunlight filter. Right. And you still allowed that adjacent oak tree to expand its crown out and they could do about two acres a day. Now these were, you know, young graduate students, um, but only, it only took two of them to treat about two acres a day. And so, you know, if you hunt and picket that on an annual basis, you can start, you know, really adding up the acres that you benefited for deer that way. Matt. Hey, we know what that sound means. It means we're going to take a break to thank one of our sponsors. Today's episode of Deer Talk Now is brought to you by Easton Archery and the all-new 5mm Autumn Orange FMJ. Celebrating Easton's 100 years in archery, the 5mm Autumn Orange FMJ is a fresh take on an old favorite. Featuring Easton's exclusive FMJ aero technology and finished with the classic Easton Autumn Orange anodized finish. This limited edition offering gives archers a modern arrow 
with a throwback nostalgia to arrows they may have never put in their quiver before. I did. I had the, those original autumn oranges when I was younger. These are available in four popular sizes, 250s, 300s, 340s, and 400 spines. And it also includes hit inserts and five millimeter X-Nox installed. Very, very, very cool. I will be shooting these arrows in that throwback autumn orange while hunting for deer and deer hunting TV this year on our Pursuit Channel shows. You might already know I'm a big fan of the FMJ line. To begin with, these arrows are skinny, they're straight, and they pack a punch. My particular setup, those arrows are 11.3 grains per inch. Plenty enough power I'm getting there on downrange kinetic energy, even though I'm only shooting 54 pounds. This adds up to a mighty wallop downrange on whitetails. Check them out at your nearest Easton Arrow dealer or visit EastonArchery.com for more information. Let me ask you this, and it's it's related to that. Um, you, you mentioned using herbicide. What I've done in the past was, because I have a problem with box elders. I've, I've had mm-hmm. it in this area. They're terrible. It's basically, it's a, it's a subspecies of the maple, but it's, yeah. they just grow like weeds, and, and you don't want them. They're really, they're not good for much. But we just take, uh, an old timer showed me this, took a machete and just removed the bark. I yeah. I think call it girdling it. It is girdling. And um, down to, I think they call it the cambium, uh, how do you say that? The cambium. Cambium layer. And it's just I, the living living tissue. The living the tissue. And then within yeah. two years, that thing was stone dead, and that, we actually used it for firewood. Yeah. But um, that would probably be another good tactic, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. It just depends on, it, you know, it'll vary a little bit from one species to another. Now, you know, if if I want, if the tree is a species that we know deer will eat the sprouts from, then I'd probably lean more towards cutting it down or just girdling it because you'll get that flush of stump sprouts. And so you've got an immediate food source and you've allowed sunlight to come back in. Um, but if it's one that is a low value from a forage preference perspective, um, that is a prolific root sprouter, then I'll probably kill it with herbicide because I, I want to prevent that from happening because it's taking up space. It, it's something be, it starts exactly. Exactly. Fascinating. So it just varies from one species to another. Okay. I'm going to switch gears again. I want to get to all three of our topics. Um, we're going to talk now. I know you re- you really know this one, uh, backwards and forwards. Coyote predation on deer. Um, I know it's probably worse in the southeast than it is here. Yep. Um, how bad is it? Which states have it worse than others? And is there anything that a landowner can do to um, help improve uh, well, fawn production, I guess, uh, deer right. production with coyotes? Yeah. So, at, you know, as you already alluded to, Dan, um, it's, it is variable from a region-wide perspective. So um, going through all, everything that's been published over the past several decades, um, on average, we see about 15 to 20% of the number of fawns that are collared in a study uh, from, if you draw a line, basically if you use the Mason-Dixon line, mm-hmm. North of the Mason-Dixon line, it's about 15 to 20% of collared fawns in a study are lost to coyote predation. You go below the Mason-Dixon line, that number jumps up to about 45 to 50% wow. of fawns in a study. Wow. And and we were, we were home to, and by we, I mean the South, we were home to the study that had the highest reported rate of fawn losses to coyotes 
that I'm aware of that's ever been published. And that was on the Savannah River site in South Carolina. That was work done by Dr. John Kilgo, the U.S. Forest Service. And their conservative estimate of fawn losses to coyotes was 60%. And it could have been as high as 80%. Wow. Now, that's extremely unusual. But the first point that I do want to make here is even though we have those regional trends, there have been several studies within the same state. There's an example from Georgia that I can think of. There's an example from Texas I can think of, one from Illinois. Um, and then I think there was also one from Michigan that showed that rates of fawn loss to coyotes varied by as much as uh, 50% from one study area to another. So, you know, over here we lost half as many fawns to coyotes as we did on this other study area. So just because you live, let's say for, um, to get back to what I was mentioning earlier, that you do live in the South, it is not a given that you have a problem related to coyote predation. It's highly variable from one step from one area to another. And in fact, in my research for my PhD in central Georgia, we had two study sites that were both wildlife management areas, so public hunting land, and they were only separated by about eight miles. And we specifically wanted to look at what what happened to fawn recruitment after two years of intensive coyote control using trapping on those sites. But one, one of the sites, as it turned out, when we started, you know, collecting data, had a fawn recruitment rate that was consistent with fawn recruitment rates on that site based on historical data prior to coyote arrival to that part of Georgia. Because coyotes haven't been in Georgia for very long at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they've only been in Alabama for a little bit longer. I mean, you're talking about like the first ones start, starting to show up in like the fifties and sixties and they didn't really become, you know, widespread and abundant until like the nineties or early two thousands. Wow. And like I said, that site was still, you know, deer on that site. were still producing on average about one fawn for every doe uh, recruiting, not producing. So they were recruiting one fawn for, for every doe, which is a pretty good recruitment rate. It's a very good recruitment um, rate. Yeah. And then on the other site that was right down the road, it was the recruitment rate was about 0.5 bonds per doe, which is pretty consistent with, with what we're seeing on sites that do have a coyote predation issue. Um, so, you know, the question is, what do you do with that information? You know, and if, and if you do happen to be on one of those sites where you're not seeing the deer numbers that you would like to, you know, you're not already killing too many does because that's typically the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can, this half inch is the most important one in deer management. And when it comes to population control, but let's say that you have that addressed, um, can you trap to increase fawn recruitment? Yeah, we have some data that it can help. Um, but of both of the studies, including the one that I just talked about in central Georgia, and then the, going back to the study site I talked about a minute ago in South Carolina, they kind of did the same thing with several years of coyote control there to see how fawns responded. We found that, the the efficacy or how well the practice worked varied a lot from one year to another um so typically what we see first year you go in there and the way we were doing this is probably a best case scenario because we were trapping thousands of acres so we're controlling the population of coyotes at a large scale we were using professional trappers and they were starting to trap months before the fawning season and continuing through it so like i said probably a best a best case uh scenario And usually what we found or what we did find in both of these studies is in year one after trapping, we got a huge increase in fawn recruitment. In year two, it went back down. In year three, it's kind of variable, like whether or not you're going to see any improvement or not. 
So over these long-term studies, what we're finding is that you get basically a, a modest positive impact that is somewhat unpredictable. Modest positive and, impact. Yeah, and and we think that that is pretty – we have a pretty strong hypothesis that that's related to coyote ecology and behavior across the landscape, and specifically that, you know, within any given area, let's say, you know, you trap 10 coyotes. Well, odds are that three of those coyotes that you trapped didn't even live on that site. They're just nomads. And the we, we think that the role of those nomads within the meta population, you know, at a larger scale is that they're usually, but not always, usually younger individuals that don't have established territories. And essentially they're covering large areas, multi-county areas mm -hmm. in many cases, and they're sampling. They're trying to find out what areas would I like to set up a territory and what and which of those areas are currently occupied. And as soon as one of those preferred areas becomes available through the removal of another coyote, they set up shop there. So it doesn't even take, you know, a full generation time with a female being bred, having pups and raising those pups to reestablish a population in that area because you have these individuals who are waiting in the wings, so to speak. Fascin that's fascinating in insights. Aren't raccoons kind of the same way? Not, not to the same extent that coyotes are. Um, they cover a lot less ground. So, but in a know, what I'm thinking of is uh, now this is just me using my. You guys say rednecks, we call them rock farmers. This is using my rock farmer mentality <laughs> here. I trap the heck out of of uh, raccoons. Yeah, and it, when I get further into the season, like I, you can here in Wisconsin, you can trap them year round on your on your yeah. own property. Yeah, and I'm catching male after male after male after male after I got all the little ones and the moms yeah. earlier. Yeah. And it, to mm -hmm. me, it seems like, yeah, these things are just going to start wandering around now until they can set up shop. Yeah. Um, I don't Nature, know if it's, if it's the same thing, but. It is It is the same thing. Nature hates a vacuum is a term that we like to use in wildlife ecology. That's an awesome So, quote. yeah, anytime, anytime there's a vacancy, something is going to fill that void. And this even goes back to the forest regeneration topic that we were talking about earlier, right? You set the stage for something to have success and something's going to take advantage of that. Um, but the term that we use, um, in wildlife biology for that is compensatory immigration. Yep. Um, and then we also, another side of this coin too, that factors into predator pay, prey dynamics is compensatory mortality. Um, and then compensatory reproduction, which basically means, you know, if you remove individuals that the, the population compensates by new individuals moving in or by individuals better surviving, because there's more resources to be shared among the remaining individuals, or maybe even having increased litter size and survival of those young due to the increased availability of resources among this, this being distributed among a smaller number of individuals. Well, doesn't that apply to those um, fawn recruitment rates then? Um, as far as, um, like you said, you got an area that's rife with coyotes, mm -hmm. um, but th it's almost like, Back in the day of SAK, you know, when we just hammered the heck out of everything that had an antler, um, yeah. those does kept spinning out more buck fawns because the, yeah. the populations were high. Is that the same thought there with um, uh, the high predation rate, yet you said the uh, recruitment rate's pretty much the same? I'm, or are you actually improved in some, in some cases, like 0.9 or... 1.0 on a recruitment rate. Yeah. So 
you're so you're asking um is it, the same thing like happening with deer population like compensatory reproduction it, yeah so that yeah we see compensatory reproduction in deer populations too that's the basic concept that if you and now it depends on where the population is relative mm-hmm. to carrying capacity right but if you're if you're you know in, in a density dependent population if you're above what we refer to as the inflection point and you reduce that population, you will see compensatory reproduction. And that's just, you know, based on the simple concept that there's more resources available for fewer animals. Man, that's fascinating stuff. The other thing I wanted to bring out was we talked about that. I think we talked about this, Ian, when we were talking about um, uh, predation across the country, we actually just did a podcast earlier about this and I did correctly say coyotes across the country. But um, I said regionally black bears are the worst because you get yeah. in some of those places where, they, where they've where they got thick black, they'll take out 80% of a fawn crop. Yeah, and, uh, sure. But like you said, and then you go into another area and it's for whatever reason, there's going to be some variables that are different. Um, yeah. That's not going to be adding up. I wanted to get to, a, I'm looking at my watch here. Um, So it does pay to trap coyotes if you're trying to do it from a, uh, helping deer management perspective, but you kind of always got to keep your foot on that gas pedal, don't you? You do. Yeah. It has to be intensive and then it has to be done on an annual basis, you know, and even then, if you do it on an annual basis, you have to manage your expectations because in some years you're likely to see a positive net benefit and other years it may be, you know, pretty dampened. Kind of similar to hogs, isn't it? Wild hogs. Oh yeah. We could probably yeah. talk about that for hours, but, um, sure. If you don't, I know those guys, I, I guess a couple things here. If you want to shoot a coyote and you want to hunt coyotes, or if you want to shoot a coyote and said you, you, you save the deer herd, I don't want to be condescending, but go ahead, do that. Um, yeah. But that really isn't helping a long-term or even short-term. Um, and I think coyotes probably, you can correct me here, Will, but I think coyotes are probably like wild hogs in the fact that, if you're trying to hunt them, my gosh, you just made it a heck of a lot harder to try to control that population as opposed to trapping them. Potentially. I mean, we know that trapping is most effective now. You know, I think in, there's certain guys with certain skill sets and equipment now, especially like the thermal scopes and some of the better electronic collars and things like that, that especially like in agricultural landscapes, they can be pretty damn effective at yep. reducing that population. But you're right, you know, and I used to do it all the time too. Um, and I, I still take a coyote on occasion, especially like last year, I, I had a, a nice, you know, a nice one with a black pelt come through while I was bow hunting during early bow season. And you and got it with a bow? I, I took, I took that coyote. Nice. Yeah. Wow. It was, it was, it was actually standing on a fallen log. Wow. It was just like trotting across this fallen log and That's I, got, a I whistled at it there. got it to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but you're right. Like that has essentially no population level impact. And I'm not saying don't do it cause I would do it 10 times out of 10. Absolutely. If it makes you happy and it's within, you know, the legal framework, be my guest. Have at it. Okay, next topic. I think this can be our last topic. Uh, what is the deal with tur- wild turkey populations? I know you're, you've been Man. studying this. Yeah, I, I would probably be a billionaire if I had the, the <laughs> one simple answer to this right now. Oh, man, there's so much going on with wild turkeys right now. You know, it, it depends on where you are. It seems like the eastern subspecies is suffering the most. Um, depending on where you are, we're seeing generally speaking like 15 to 20% declines in harvest. Now, one thing that you have to keep in mind with that too, is that 
Some of that decrease in harvest is by design um, because we have more and more states that are limiting opportunity to address declining populations. And so if we're just using harvest as an index of that population size, it's going to be biased by that fact that, you know, we're reducing bag limits in some places, we're reducing seasons elsewhere. Um, turkey hunter numbers are declining as well um, at a little bit higher rate than the harvest is actually going down. Um, so that's factoring into the reduced harvest uh, in addition to the the changing season frameworks. But, man, it, this is a hard one to take on, you know, Probably, and you know I'm a habitat guy, we started out talking about habitat-related issues. One of the things that seems to be popping up more and more in the in the research projects results that are coming out right now, and there's more turkey research going on in the United States right now than I think there ever has been at one time, is that the areas where turkeys reproduce, particularly where they nest and where they raise their broods, only represent that, that cover type, that vegetation community, represent single digit percentages of the landscape anymore um and it's that same early succession type habitat that we were talking about related to providing high quality deer nutrition earlier um and so you have to be very intentional to create and maintain that habitat type so it makes sense that if a lot of people aren't actively doing it or there aren't land uses that are conducive to creating that that vegetation is a condition that it's going to be real relatively limiting. So we know that it's limiting. And we also know from a couple of studies that have come out recently that hens disproportionately select to nest in those areas and that nest success is significantly higher in those areas than it is in the surrounding landscape, which is commonly, you know, forest or, you know, row crop or pasture land. So if I had to point to one thing, you know, I would say that it's probably an issue related to the vegetation that turkeys need to reproduce. And if you think about it, um, Dan, I don't know how much, you know, you follow quail hunting or, you know, northern bobwhite populations, but, you know, northern bobwhite populations have been in trouble for a long time now. And it makes sense that turkeys are starting to struggle, too, because the areas that they use for brooding, especially, uh, look very similar to bobwhite habitat. I'll be darned. Now that's in the south. Uh, would you say that would be the case across the country? Uh, it's a it's a habitat issue more than anything else. You know, I I haven't seen as much of that data from areas outside the southeast, so I don't know that that would be a, a safe conclusion. But just knowing what I I do know about you know general changes in landscape across the eastern United States, I think it's probably playing at least you know, at least somewhat of, somewhat of a role. And we know places like Missouri, which has been historically just like just the epicenter of wild turkey mm -hmm. hunting, they've, yeah. ha they've had serious issues. Right, um, absolutely. And it's interesting. I, I always caution, especially readers or viewers, when they, when they ask a question, because it's real easy to blame it's like me blaming the Packers' offensive line for Aaron mm -hmm. Rodgers going to the Jets, probably. But, um, <laughs> but it, it it's they want to blame the coyotes or you know yeah the avian yeah. predators or you know it's it's all these owls and hawks that are eating yeah tur baby turkeys and stuff. I said no, nah, it's probably something bigger than that. Yeah, I mean I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. Um, yeah. we know that it happens. Predation is, uh, I mean, everything's trying to kill a turkey. Yeah. Um, but when you get to the other thing I wanted to ask you, are there any disease concerns 
that might yeah. be driving um, declines in some areas. Yeah, yeah, there there are some, but but before I get into that, I'd, I'd like to briefly address something, touch on something you just said, Dan, and that's that you know people like to point the finger at predators. I want people and, and predators are contributing to the decline. Like, don't get me wrong, we could go, you know, we could talk about that for an hour, but I want people to start shifting their mindset to also realizing that trapping isn't the only form of predator management. Habitat management is predator management too. Excellent point. Because because we can make we can make landscapes more difficult for predators to be successful in and we can make landscapes that produce more young that can, you know, overwhelm the predators too. You know, we can compensate if you will for that predation. Uh but yeah, there's absolutely some disease concerns as well. You know, one of the the latest ones that people are the most focused on right now and I've got some ongoing work related to this as well as uh, lymphoproliferative disease virus, LPDV for short is what most people re- refer to it as. And this is a, uh, a virus that basically causes um, cancerous tumors in the organs of turkeys. And we know that it's relatively widespread. Um, there's been some intensive sampling in a few states, but we still have some gaps to fill across the landscape to determine what its prevalence rate is. Um, but I know up in Maine, they've got some ongoing research related to it related to this. And, um, I think, I don't know if it's been published yet, but I've heard some preliminary results that suggest that even though a lot of the, the turkeys that are, that show antibodies for this disease aren't symptomatic, that they have correlate, seen some correlation between exposure to this virus and reduced clutch size in hens. Um, more research is needed on that, but obviously something that's not, not exciting to people that are trying to maximize turkey hunt turkey abundance and have huntable populations of turkeys. Um, but from the places that have been fairly intensively sampled, we're seeing about 50% of those birds showing current or, or prior infection to the virus. I'll be darned. It has um, anything like avian flu taken a bite out of it at all? Or So that's an interesting one. Um, so I'm not, I'll preface this by saying I am not a disease ecologist, mm-hmm. um, but I work with some. <laughs> And you play one on they, TV. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Just kidding. But but some of the ones that I've talked to, um, they say that they aren't particularly concerned about avian influenza virus when it comes to turkeys because turkeys don't closely associate with migratory species that typically spread that disease. You know, like your waterfowl um, and your vultures and and, spe- and species of that nature that that migrate. Um, but there have been instances of confirmed cases in wild turkeys. Interesting. So, you know, I think the jury's still out at this point on whether or not it's a population consequence. The the thing that you said, well, that brings me back to to focus is it's all about the habitat. And it's um it doesn't I mean, Elder Leopold taught us that how many years ago? 100 years ago. Um, yeah. basically you remember the, the deer wars of 43 people yeah. were like, Oh, we got to save our deer. And he goes, no, you actually have to create better overwinter habitat. You have yeah. to, you know, there, and back then it wasn't much as much of an issue as it is now, because yeah. you see in like up here where we have, I'm going off the tracks a little bit, but up here where we have, where we used to have traditional deer yards, and that's kind of stuff took care of itself. We don't, everything's fragmented. Um, you have so many people fighting over what the forest should look like. Some of the forests are sick, but you know, they, people want to walk through them and you have no understory. So 
And it goes yeah. to turkeys, it goes to songbirds, it goes to everything else. If you take care of the habitat, everything it eventually is going to right itself. Yeah, you said it very well, and you referenced Leopold. I love that. And another, and I'll paraphrase here, but something else that Leopold said is that if if habitat can't support game populations in spite of predators, then it's not game habitat. Excellent. Yeah, I, right? I, I forgot about that. And, and so there's nothing wrong you know, with implementing predator control. There's nothing wrong with trapping. I enjoy that. I enjoy trapping myself. Um, but, you know, good habitat is the foundation upon which everything else rests. And it can it can mitigate or make up for a lot of other problems that populations are facing. And especially with game species like deer and turkeys, these are prey species and they're evolved to suffer, you know, relatively high losses to predation. So as long as, you know, you've got decent to high quality habitat in place, they have ways of compensating for that predation loss. They do, and that's why a doll have twins, and that's why a turkey will have 12 eggs. Because And that's why we can shoot so many of them. <laughs> that's why we can shoot so many. <laughs> well, we hit the magic mark. Thank you, Will. I very much appreciate it. I can tell that you have a doctorate in ecology because you know this stuff. I, I have to look in books to reference it. You know it off the top of your head. But Well, uh, <laughs> I love talking about it, and I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Absolutely. Um, if people want to learn more about the work that you guys have been doing, and I know it's a lot of great work that we have referenced in Deer and Deer Hunting, I know mm-hmm. the Auburn um, Deer Lab does have a website. Yep. And that is that just Auburn University, or is um, I think I can't remember. Is, I can't remember the exact address, but if you Google Auburn Deer Lab, you know, it's gonna go right it'll, there. it'll pop right up. And then um, there's also an Auburn Deer Lab Facebook page. Yes. And then I am, if you want to look directly at my work, lately it's been very turkey-focused. I slip some deer things in there every now and then, but um, I'm very active on Instagram, and that's at Dr. Dr. underscore Will underscore Goolsby, and that's G-U-L-S-B-Y. And I try to post research updates there pretty often as well as just, you know, interesting things that I see here and there that provide good demonstrations for folks. Thank you very much, guys. We're going to share that um, in the links here so people can find uh, Will and they can find Auburn and everything else. Thank you again. Uh, Hopefully we can do this again. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Dan. Enjoyed it. Awesome. For Dr. Will Gullsby, Auburn University, I am Dan Schmidt with Deer and Deer Hunting. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Deer Talk Now every Thursday wherever podcasts can be listened to or watched. We'll catch you next time. This episode is brought to you by Drop Tine Spirits and their premium 12-point bourbon whiskey. The story of Drop Tine's finest bourbon starts with being double barrel aged. What this means is they first aged the bourbon in new charred oak barrels in America's heartland, then sent it to California to be finished in the salt air of the Pacific in the finest brandy barrels. Finishing their bourbon in brandy barrels was the choice of many trials to find flavors as unique as the Drop Tine Deer. They wanted a bourbon that is not only warm to the palate, but it would sip smoothly and leave notes of fruit behind. They found the perfect brandy barrels in the Russian River Valley near Sonoma, California, and what they created is a bourbon whiskey that exhibits a sweet, floral, almost honey-like aroma balanced by caramel, toasted wood, brown sugar, and toffee. 12-point bourbon is only available online. To get a taste for yourself after the hunt, visit droptime.com. Deer Talk Now is also brought to you by HuntStand and the new HuntStand Pro app. Let me tell you, I've been using the HuntStand app for a couple seasons now, and I can honestly say it has changed the way I hunt. 
There's no more guessing on wind direction, property lines, and stand locations. The app takes my hunting to precise new levels that help me be more successful. The new HuntStand Pro app unlocks unlimited property data on a nationwide basis, including detailed property boundaries throughout the United States and most of Canada, including property owners' names in the United States with detailed ownership information. You can also access detailed public land maps and search for properties on a county, state, or province level. There are so many features that also help you dial in on the best spots based on weather conditions. For more information, visit the App Store or log on to HuntStand.com. This podcast is brought to you by Cuddyback Cameras. I'm going to tell you guys, I've known Mark Cuddyback personally for over 20 years, and I've been using those cameras for over 18 years on Deer and Deer Hunting TV. The recent technology in the past few years has absolutely blown me away. And for those of you who don't have great cell coverage where you hunt, Cuddyback's ability to daisy chain from one camera to another camera with new Cuddylink technology is an absolute lifesaver. With the ability to connect 24 cameras, I place one home-based camera at the edge of my property, swap that card out just once a month, and I get a look at all the activity on my entire property. My deer stay unpressured and the conditions are prime for opening day of bow season. For those of you who have the luxury of cell service, check out their new Cuddyback Tracks technology. This is game changing. For more information, go to cuddyback.com. Deer Talk is also brought to you by Traditions Firearms, a family-owned business and inventor of the new Nitro Fire muzzleloader. When owner and president Tom Hall and his daughter Allison first showed me the Nitro Fire system, I was immediately impressed that it is not only more convenient than conventional muzzleloaders, but it is safer. The ability to quickly remove the powder charge is a big deal, such as when crossing a fence, climbing into or out of a tree stand, transporting your rifle in a truck or an ATV, or when hiking rough hills, wading creeks, or plunging through swamps. I've used the Nitro Fire on numerous deer and deer hunting TV hunts over the past two years, and I find it safe, accurate, and very dependable. The gun is available in numerous configurations. To learn more, visit traditionsfirearms.com. The Deer Talk Now podcast is also brought to you by Apex Outdoor Rewards. Hit record and win rewards. Enter the Apex Whitetail Challenge in your state for your opportunity to win big cash. Enter today and get a 4K camera absolutely free. That's a $300 value absolutely free. There are some serious rewards here, guys, so be sure to enter in your state. Who would have thought your next buck could be putting money in your pocket? Reserve your spot today at apexoutdoorrewards.com. The Deer Talk Now podcast is also brought to you by Full Range Mounting Systems. These mounting systems are a great way to manage all of your mounts in a stylish and organized manner. We are using their pedestal mount here on the podcast set for two shoulder mounts and it looks just awesome. Be sure to check out all their mounting solutions at fullrangesystems.com. And finally, Deer Talk Now is brought to you by 10 Point Crossbow Technologies. Hey, if you've watched me on Deer and Deer Hunting TV, you know that I'm an equal opportunity bow hunter. And for most of the past decade, that has also included crossbows. In fact, I shot my first crossbow deer with a 10 point over 12 years ago. And to say that I've been impressed with their technology is an understatement. 
This year, I'm shooting the new Nitro 505, the fastest crossbow in the world. It is light, compact, and includes the revolutionary AccuSlide cocking and decocking technology. Whether I'm in a tree stand, ground blind, or spot and stalk hunting, I know the Nitro 505 is up to any challenge. Check one out at a dealer near you or log on to 10pointcrossbows.com for more information. 